This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. The book of Exodus, chapter 1. Everybody loves a hero. Heroes inspire us. They capture our imagination. We greatly admire their exploits and their feats of bravery and their acts of selflessness. We salute their outstanding achievements in society and what they have accomplished not only in their own lives but in the lives of others we find remarkable and admirable. And often uh, heroes are honored uh, and recognized uh, by a sovereign of of a country and are given some accolade. And sometimes a statue or a plinth uh, would be erected in the public square in their honor or their memory. Hebrews 11 is known as the roll call of the heroes of faith. And in Hebrews 11, uh, the writer to the Hebrew Christians, uh, who were at that particular time really struggling with their faith, they were coming under tremendous pressure from outside forces, from the government and, and from the Jews and, uh, and all kinds of situations to the point where some of them were actually leaving the faith and leaving the church. And so the writer to the Hebrews writes to them to remind them of their progenitors in the past who also faced great struggles and battles. But with faith in God, they overcame them and came through. And so he's trying to make them see that to encourage them. And in Hebrews 11, for instance, uh, he lists certain ones. Verse 4, by faith, Abel. Verse 7, by faith, Noah. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham. Verse 11, by faith, Sarah. By faith, Isaac. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Joseph. By faith, Moses. By faith, the heart at Rahab. By faith, Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and all the prophets. And that's the A-listers that he mentions. And so there's a lot there that he's telling them about to encourage them in their faith. Now, we have a a tendency to idolize heroes. We we somehow fancy that they're, they're superhuman. They're not like ordinary people. They're just superhuman. But if you look closely at that particular list of heroes in Hebrews 11, you'll see that there were some characters among them. You'll see that uh, many of them had checkered histories and they had some big failures on their CVs. But yet here they are listed as heroes of faith. And the one thing that singled them all out was their faith in God. And notice how God points out their faith rather than your failures in Hebrews 11. Because all of them had failures, but they had faith in God. And that's the one thing that you and I have got, (coughs) faith in God. Now, if I was saying, I'm going to preach this morning on Elijah, uh, then you might have a problem with that. And you might say, well, Elijah is the great Elijah. How could I compare myself to Elijah? But yet James says he was a man of like passions, a nature just like ours, and yet through faith he did great exploits. And so this morning, I, I, and this is why I ask you to turn to Exodus, uh, I want to pick out one of those from the roll call of faith, Moses, and share with us uh, about Moses. Now, you may say, well, Moses is a way out of my league. 
And uh, what in the world could I possibly have in common with such a giant of faith like Moses? Well, we may never be asked to do any of the exploits of the great heroes of faith in the Bible, but we still have faith, and we have faith for this journey of our Christian lives. And so as we share about Moses today, I want us to be encouraged. I want us to get inspired. I want us to see in spite of everything, he trusted and he believed God. And so did his parents. And uh, so as we take our personal journey of faith, then I want us to, as believers, to be inspired and strengthened as we uh, begin to read this particular story here. Now, the lifespan of Moses was about 120 years. Well, it was exactly 120 years. And it was divided into three parts, the first 40, the middle 40, and the last 40. And we'll come to all this as we begin to study. His life is covered in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, which are the books that he wrote, uh, including Genesis. And uh, that makes up the Torah or the Pentateuch or the five scrolls of the law, the first five books of the Bible. He also wrote Psalm 90. And he has mentioned 784 verses in both the Old and the New Testaments. 705 times in the Old Testament, 79 times in the New Testament. So that's a big mention. So somebody who gets a big mention like that deserves our attention because the Holy Spirit, the author of Scripture, is trying to get our attention and to show us and to teach us some lessons. He was the great lawgiver. He was the great emancipator, the great deliverer of Israel. He was also the meekest man that ever lived. He had tremendous faith, and he had a great love for God and God's people. He was a great strategist. He was an extraordinary leader of men, extremely brave and daring. He was incredibly patient and long-suffering. He recorded the very first song in Scripture, Exodus 15. He was with Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration. He gave us the Ten Commandments, which has been the bedrock of morality for millennia in all the Abrahamic faiths, including Christianity. Uh, it's interesting that just this week I read that in Henan province in China, that a church there uh, was ordered and demanded to take down the first commandment that they had emblazoned across their church. You know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul. And all mind. You know, they had to take that down because it offended the government officials. Can you imagine that after thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years, that those tablets of stone that God wrote on, that Moses brought down from the mountain, they're still offending governments to this very day. Hallelujah. We cannot emphasize enough the incredible mark that this man made upon human history. And as we read his story, I, I hope that you get inspired and get encouraged in your personal walk with Christ today. And so we want to start this morning. And we want to begin a journey with Moses, and let's see how far it will go. I don't know, it'll be a couple of weeks, I'm sure. But I want each message to speak into our lives. I don't want this just to be something in history. These are written for our admonition today. That's why they're there. And so I want us to be encouraged as we read these. And I want each message to speak to us in our lives today. Uh, to encourage us, to challenge us. And, and, and we're going to see lots of similarities 
to what the world is like today than what it was like back then. Believe me, there are many similarities. So no better place to start than right at the very beginning. Moses was born in Egypt, uh, a very long way from the birthplace of his parents uh, who were Hebrew slaves. Now, how did all that happen? Well, in Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14, let me read this to you. God spoke to Abraham and gave him a prophetic promise. Then he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. Now that prophetic promise was now nearing the end of its fulfillment, and its fulfillment would be in Moses. Now you remember that Joseph's brothers, the sons of Jacob, how that they were very jealous of young Joseph. His father had made him that beautiful coat and favored him above the rest. And how that in their jealousy and their anger, they sold him into slavery, uh, into Egypt. And how that that righteous young man who was betrayed by his brothers, again is betrayed by his master Potiphar's wife and ends up in prison. But in prison, he's greatly favored by the prison officer, and he begins to uh, interpret dreams, and they interpret the dreams of the butler and the king's butler and beggar, and they were very, very accurate, and with great success he did that. And then two years later, uh, the king had disturbing dreams that he couldn't understand, and, and none of his wise men and none of his counselors could understand them either. There's only one person who understood them, and that was Joseph, who was in prison, and he brought him out of prison, and he told him about the seven years of famine and the seven years of plenty. He told him all of that there, and Pharaoh was so <laughs> impressed by that, that, he made him prime minister of all of Egypt, and he organized uh, all over Egypt places to store the grain, and it saved that whole nation. And you remember how when the famine was rife in Canaan, uh, where his father and brothers all lived, how they came, his brothers came to Egypt, uh, getting corn to buy corn, and Jacob or Joseph recognized them immediately. But in a process, which we know very well, how then he showed himself to them and hugged them and gave them enough corn and says, look, bring your whole family here and stay here in the land of Goshen and uh, it'll be my patronage will do that and with the Pharaoh's blessing. And that's what they did. Uh, and so all the brothers and all their wives and their family and Jacob and all his descendants, about 70 of them all came to live in the land of Goshen. And then, of course, over the, over the centuries, because this is over a 400-year period, over the centuries, that 70 began to grow and to multiply to the point where they became about 2 million strong in the land of Goshen. And so we join the story here in Exodus. Joseph is long since dead whenever we join the story. In fact... If we read just the last couple of verses of Genesis uh, 50, just before 
uh, Exodus 1. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation, the children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of the land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Genesis, at the beginning, starts with a man in a garden, and Genesis ends with a man in a coffin. A lot happened between those 50 chapters. And then Exodus chapter 1, verse 1. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation... But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly and multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. What years of prosperity and blessing and multiplication and the hand of God was mightily upon them. But look at verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. If I was going to entitle this section, I would entitle it, There's a New Sheriff in Town. And everything began to change from this moment forward. Everything was wonderful. They were being mightily blessed and prospered and multiplying. And suddenly, a new sheriff comes to town. A new pharaoh was raised up. And this new pharaoh was going to cause them all kinds of problems and difficulties. And this new pharaoh, it says, did not know Joseph. Now, does that mean that he simply did not recognize Joseph of old and acknowledged all that Joseph of old had done for Egypt, how he had saved them, literally saved them as a nation? Or does it simply mean that over the centuries, over the generations, that all that was ancient history and it was all into the, the mists and fog of history. And he wasn't bothered, didn't care, maybe literally did not know because generations had passed. And what did he care about the past? He only cared about right now. He's taking leadership now. He's caring about now and in the future or regardless of the past. So he did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. Now, here is the first anti-Semite in history. And he eyes the Hebrews the Jews in Goshen who become mighty in their midst. And he has no logical, reasonable reason to go against them because yeah, right. they've never done them any harm. They've never done the land any harm. 
They've only ever been a blessing to Egypt, ever. But anti-Semitism, even though it can go under the guise of politics and it can go under the guise of, of nationalism, can go under the guise of all kinds of things, but underneath it all, it's a spirit. It's an evil spirit, a wicked spirit that's against God's people. Because, and I'll tell you why, because the devil knew that the Messiah, the one who would bruise his head, was going to come from the Jews, was going to come from the Hebrews. And he was going to try to kill them and stamp them out and stop them before that would happen. Of course, we know he didn't do that, and he couldn't do that. Hallelujah. So now that the Messiah has come, what does he do? He now he goes back now and hammers the Jews again because they were the ones who brought the Messiah into this world. Why do you think that the Jews today are under so much persecution all over the world and has been all throughout history? It's a spiritual thing. It's a spirit. And governments and politicians don't understand that. They think they've got the answer for the Middle East. They haven't. Because they're looking at it all politically and economically and nationally and racially. But it's a spiritual thing. And they haven't got a handle on that at all. Amen. And so here is the first anti-Semite in history. And here is, could I say, mass immigration. <laughs> Two million people in their land. Even though they hadn't done him any harm, even though they only ever been a blessing, but suddenly he's getting frightened of this mass immigration. Everywhere where there's mass immigration into any country, there's always going to be tensions and problems. Always. And we see that in the 21st century right now, today, as we speak. It's happening around the world, isn't it? It's on our news daily. And so... He says, let us deal shrewdly with these. Lest if a war comes, they will side with our enemies against us. Well, they had no intention of doing that, of course. But that was in his mind. Therefore they set up taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Python and Ramesses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. And they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor or with harshness. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage and mortar and a brick and all manner of service in the field. And all their service which they made them serve was with rigor or with harshness. Now notice what's happening here. Here they are in the land of Goshen. And what does he do? He makes Goshen a ghetto. He makes Goshen a ghetto. Where have we seen that in our history, our recent history? Because that's what Hitler did. All over Europe, where there was Jews, he ghettoized them. He put them into ghettos. And he dealt harshly with them. And this is what the first anti-Semite did. This Pharaoh dealt bitterly, harshly with them, was cruel to them, was working them to death. And Hitler's Nazi Germany, the great German factories, the renowned ones, all during that war period, they were kept going full steam ahead with slave labor, with Jews particularly, but other nationalities as well that they hated too. They kept that going with slave labor. And it didn't matter how hard they were against them or how harsh they were against them. It didn't matter. There were thousands more to take their place. 
And this is what this Pharaoh was doing. And he's treating them very, very badly. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shifra, and the name of the other Pua. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew woman and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. Treating them harshly, making them slaves, putting them in a ghetto, unlike Nazi Germany. In this instance, they grew and they prospered and they continued to multiply. No matter what he did against them, it didn't matter. They just grew and grew and grew and multiplied. God's hand of blessing was mightily upon them. And so his next move was, well, that didn't work. So we're going to start killing all the baby boys. Every son that's born to a Hebrew woman, let's kill them. And he got these two midwives. The historians reckon there's at least 500 to 1,000 midwives at that time over the Hebrew woman. And he got these two main ones to give the orders that at birth, as soon as it was known it was a baby boy, to immediately kill them. Just a couple of years ago now, China stopped the ruling they had of one child families. Only in China it was. <laughs> it was the other way around. It was killing the girls and letting the boys live. And so abortion was on a massive scale. Abortion today is on a massive scale, don't you know? Don't you know that last year, 2018, 42 million babies were aborted in the world? And that's only what's recorded. 42 million. I told you the other week, in Southern Ireland, in the Republic of Ireland, they were dancing in the streets because they got the abortion appeal law repealed, Article 8, and they were dancing and celebrating in the streets at the death, at the murder of little babies in the womb. And this is the 21st century. This is not thousands of years ago in Pharaoh's day. This is today. The world hasn't changed that much, has it? Because evil is still evil. It's the same devil today. And so the order goes out. As soon as you spot it, it's a baby boy being born. Kill it. Just let the girls know. Well, why would they do that? Well, if all the boys were dead growing up, there'd be no men to marry for the Hebrew girls, so they would intermarry into Egyptians and then after a while their whole identity would be lost they would be assimilated into Egypt uh, the Jewish race would exist no more that was the idea, that was the thought behind it verse 17 but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them but saved the male children alive huh two things <coughs> Here's the first recorded act of civil disobedience in history. Now, by and large, the scriptures tell us in the Old Testament, and particularly in the New Testament, that we should obey the laws of the land, that we should obey our governments. And it says if we do, it will go well with us. That's what Paul says. But, but 
if it's against our conscience towards God, then Peter says we ought to obey God rather than man. And so there are times, and it's happening all over the world, and it'll be happening here, there's times when we'll be challenged with our conscience towards God or obeying what the government says. And crunch times will be coming. And here's a crunch time. And these two midwives, and here's the interesting thing. They've got Egyptian names. These are not Hebrew names. These are Egyptian names. So were they given Egypt, were the Hebrews given Egyptian names at birth because the generation after generation after generation lived in Egypt, or were they Egyptians who then began to believe in the one true and living God, Jehovah, and Judaism? We don't know. We just don't know. But what we do know was they believed God, and they believed the commandment, Thou shalt not murder. And so they decided to take a stand. They were pro-life, not pro-choice. They were pro-life. Here's the first pro-lifers recorded in history. Thank God for pro-lifers. But they're in a minority, as they were too. And so the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively and give birth before the midwives come to them. <laughs> now, was that a complete outright lie? Or was that partial truth? Well, Historians like Josephus and Eusebius and different ones did say that it seemed to be that the Hebrew woman gave birth quickly and the Egyptians didn't. And so maybe these head midwives maybe says, by the way, when you know it's, it's coming close to the, to the birth time, don't be in any hurry to go over to that house. Just let them get on with it. And by the time you get over, it'll be all done and dusted. <laughs> So maybe they weren't telling outright lies. But that was a plan, and it was a good plan, and it really, really worked. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are lively, give birth before the midwives come to them. Therefore God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because of the midwives, because they feared God, that he provided households for them. And in the margin, it says, he gave them families. So maybe he gave them families of their own. I hope they were all girls. It'd be easier for them, wouldn't it? But note this. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, not just the midwives, but all his people, saying, every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive it's gone here from termination to extermination and now everyone this is an edict from the king this is official government law must be obeyed of course in those days there was no democracy the pharaoh ruled he thought he was the incarnation of Ra, the sun god. So who's going to argue with him? 
So everyone was under orders. So you can imagine in Goshen with a Hebrew woman who were getting near childbirth, wondering, will somebody tell on me? Will somebody spy on me? Will Egyptians who come to do business with us, who buy our wares, will they be asking? Will they say, uh, you know, maybe, maybe they would say, well, I heard that your, your sister-in-law was having a child. Did you have that child yet? Or how long will it be before uh, your sister, how long will it be before that child arrives? And so they'll be on edge. They'll be wondering, who will shop me? Who will be a tout? Who will tell on me here? So you can imagine the pressure they must have been under at that time. And it was, it was a death sentence. Think of this. Every boy that was to be born in Goshen was under a death sentence. They were to be thrown into the River Nile to be eaten by the crocodiles. That's how harsh and how brutal it is. And you say, well, David, that was Pharaoh. That was thousands and thousands of years ago. Listen, some of you here, because of your age, some of you here, the day you were born, the day you were born in Nazi Germany, they were herding children into the gas chambers and burning them in the ovens. That's not thousands of years ago. That's in some of your lifetimes. So the devil is very real. Evil is very real. And these things are happening to this very day. There's an organization in the United States. Official. And aborted baby parts are being sold to be used in cosmetics. Selling the parts of babies that have been torn apart. Today, in the 21st century, in 2019. So this is not an old, dry, dusty, historic book. This is right up to date. Because it's the same devil. It's the same evil. It's the same spirit. And so here they are. What pressure. What tension, what stress. Imagine if you were a couple. And if you were the woman and you were pregnant. And you had no idea what that child was going to be. And everybody was asking you, how are you doing? Is your time close? What do you think it's going to be? And you don't know what to say. You don't know who to trust. Can you imagine that? Every place in Europe during the Nazi reign where the Jews were, local people were giving them up to the death squads. That's a historic fact. Yes there, was, yes, there was the odd occasion when people saved them, hid them. God bless them. But by and large, they were giving them up, handing them over to be destroyed. That was happening under Pharaoh in the land of Goshen.
And so it's a dark, dark day in Egypt. And this is a dark, dark world we live in. Evil's still abounding. But thank God grace does much more abound in the midst of it. So what's going to happen? Things has got really, really bad. They're in a ghetto. Their children are being murdered. There's death squads outside roaming the streets looking for babies to kill. What are they going to do? How are they going to survive? How's God going to set them free and deliver them from this? We're going to wrap up here because we're going to come back to this tonight. F.W. Bourne said, When a wrong wants writing and a work wants doing or a truth wants preaching or a continent wants opening, God sends a baby into the world to do it. <laughs> that is why long, long ago he said a babe was born at Bethlehem. And that was why long, long ago a baby was born in Egypt. Moses. God always has a plan. And God's plan is always in time. And that prophecy that Abraham gave 400 years prior to this was about to be fulfilled. It took four centuries and more, but it was about to be fulfilled. And little baby Moses would be the fulfillment of that promise. God willing, tonight, we want to look further into chapter 2. And it's full, absolutely, of a golden bowl full of stuff for you tonight. Don't miss it, I'm telling you. And if you feel the call of God is in your life, and you're passionate about it, and you want to do it, and you're keen to do it, so was Moses. But he blew it. He blew it. Big time. But thank God for a second chance. If you're a parent, Christian parent, listen to me. You need to come tonight. You need to see that mother in Israel, Jochebed. You need to see how she handled that situation. I don't think your situation would ever be as bad as this. But it was for her. But let's see how she handled it. Let's see how God, in the mix of all of this, turned the whole thing around for his glory and for their good. Amen? And so please, come tonight, and let's get into part two. And then we'll see how far it takes us. I'm not sure at this point, but let's see how far this takes us. And let's be encouraged, enlightened, instructed, and challenged, and blessed as we see the hand of God working through these issues. These are issues that we have to Facebook the 21st century. Lord, we give you thanks that you are never without a witness. We thank you that your plan is always good. And Lord, we trust your plan. We trust your hand in our lives. And we believe, Lord, that you're working all things according to your will and purpose Lord. in our lives. And so we can rest secure in that. And by faith, the faith that you put in our hearts, we can trust you to do this for your glory and for your honor and for our good. And so we give you thanks. 
in Christ's name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.